Hey, this is Jim Moose Brown. And this is Don Rollins. And it's five o'clock somewhere. That's right. <laughs> are you here? <clears throat> Just where are you? Well, whether you're in New York or Los Angeles, really anywhere in the world, five o'clock is synonymous with calling it a day and enjoying a cold beverage. Maybe your cold drink is the famous hurricane cocktail made famous by Pat O'Brien's Bar in New Orleans. We heard our friend Dave Hooser was hanging out in the French Quarter, but he didn't necessarily wait till 5 o'clock. He knew it was 5 o'clock somewhere. Now, most of you know the song, It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere. That was recorded and made famous by Alan Jackson and the late Jimmy Buffett. It became a very important song for Jimmy Buffett. It's Five O'Clock Somewhere remains Jimmy Buffett's only number one hit. He performed it close to 600 times over the last 20 years. In fact, Jimmy sang it as a duet with Mac McAnally at his very last performance, July 2nd, 2023. Your host, Paul Leslie, had the honor and pleasure of interviewing Don Rollins and Jim Moose Brown the two songwriters who wrote the hit, It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. The interview took place in a recording studio in Nashville, Tennessee, years and years ago. It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, written by Rollins and Brown, catapulted Jimmy Buffett even more into the public spotlight and gave him lots of airplay on country radio. It spent eight non-consecutive weeks at number one, in the Billboard Hot Country Singles Chart in the summer of 2003. The song also won the CMA Award for Vocal Event of the Year, as well as the Grammy for Best Country Song of 2003. It was also number 17 on the U.S. Hot 100, making it the most successful pop hit for both Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett. Billboard named It's Five O'Clock Somewhere as the most played country song of 2003. Right quick, the Paul Leslie Hour has been archiving and distributing interviews for more than 19 years, and it's made possible in part by listeners and viewers like you, so give to yourself and to others the gift of stories. Simply visit www.thepaulleslie.com support. Hey, I think it's time we played the interview with Don Rollins and Jim Moose Brown, two very talented songwriters, right here on the Paul Leslie Hour. Sitting here with Don Rollins and Jim Moose Brown, songwriters, musicians, and they're going to tell us a little bit about their lives and a little bit about their songwriting. So I'd like to, first of all, thank you guys for making the time to do this, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming down to Nashville. Uh, first, I'd like to start with, uh, to my immediate right, uh, Mr. Jim Moose Brown. I wanted to know uh, how you got started with the songwriting end of the business. Well, I moved to Nashville in 1982, and I moved here to be a session musician, which is currently what I still do for the most part, and I songwrite around that, and I play a lot of country music records as a piano player, and uh, I started, you know, doing, uh, playing piano on songwriters' demo sessions when they would go in the studio to demo their songs to pitch them, and 
several of the writers through the years asked me to start writing with them, and Don being one of them, and uh, thank God he did. But uh, I've known Don. I used to play on his songwriting demos uh, early on when he started coming to Nashville. And we started writing together probably, what, about six years ago, five, six years ago, yeah. something like that? Yeah. So uh, that's how I broke into the writing world, kind of through the back door as a musician already established, you know. And Mr. Rollins. Well, I uh, I really came at this from a strange viewpoint. Uh, I mean, I uh, was a saxophone player of all things in Texas, and uh, have a music ed degree, and was teaching high school music and and doing that thing, and playing in a lot of really good uh, blues bands, and and you know doing the Texas music scene, and ended up with a lot of. Uh, um, friends and and cohorts in the music business down there that had uh, record deals up here or writing deals up here and uh, uh, so I got really fascinated with the songwriting end of things and um, uh, so I, I really started uh, paying attention to that and started writing for some bands I was playing with down there and um, uh, you know one of the last bands that I was in before I moved to town was um, a band where uh, D. Vincent Williams who wrote, wrote I'm Moving On for Rascal Flatts was the piano player and, uh, you know, we uh, we wrote together back in those days when we would try out uh, songs um, in front of the audience and uh, and see how that went. And uh, and so even though I never sang a note, I was always, uh, you know, involved in the, in the writing end of whatever band I was in. And I, that just naturally translated to, to coming up here. Growing up, what did, I was wondering, what what kind of music did you guys listening to listen to? And I want to start with uh Mr. Moose. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I actually grew up in the Detroit area, and so I listened to a lot of Motown, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin and that kind of stuff, and and Elton John. And uh, my parents were from the South. My parents were from Arkansas, and so I was also exposed to country music. And I actually grew to love country music when I got into my teens. And uh, I knew from probably about the time I was fourteen or fifteen that I would love to be involved in that. Uh, in the making of that, you know, so I moved to Nashville uh, with that dream, like a lot of other people, to to be a studio musician. And um, I worked out on the road uh, with a lot of people uh, when I first moved here and worked in a lot of clubs and did a lot of different things. Uh, it took a while to get established as a studio musician, but I've been doing that pretty much since uh, about 1993, you know, just, just being a studio musician, not traveling, and uh, songwriting. And Mr. Rollins, what kind of music did you listen to growing up? Well, um, it's, it's kind of strange. I started actually on guitar with my first instrument. I got a little Gibson guitar for my seventh birthday and uh, learned all the Hank Williams songs and, and you know all the stuff that you could learn pretty easily. My dad was into country music. And um, when I started playing saxophone, I really uh, started getting into jazz and uh you know, so going from Hank Williams to John Coltrane is kind of a swing, but but that's kind of what I did. Um, and then when I was in college, I um, started playing with bar bands. And my first bar band that I was involved with was uh, playing behind Katie Webster, who um, was one of Otis Redding's former keyboard players. So that really woke me up to the the stacks, the old '60s soul stuff, and uh, and that kind of formed a bridge for me between the jazz stuff that I, I'd been doing and the uh, the country stuff that I grew up on, and that that definitely made a link between all of that and made it all make sense and work together. So, uh, and then I have a classical background, and I've, I mean, I play with everything from symphonies to uh, I did a short run with Ringling Brothers Martin and Bailey Circus one time. So. Uh, so I have a pretty diverse set of musical influences, but but really from country to jazz to to old soul is kind of kind of my major stopping points. 
So how did you guys meet? Uh, the first time I met Jim was in 1997. I had just signed a writing deal with Warner Chapel. I was still actually teaching band in Texas, and uh, I was doing uh, uh, you know songwriter demos up here uh, at uh, a studio called Germantown. And uh, Moose came in and played piano uh, for uh, for me on that session. That I I remember very distinctly. It was the, the first time I ever I ever met Jim. And what was your first impression of Jim? Uh, that he was a good keyboard player. I mean, uh, I never really. <laughs> I never, I never really thought about, uh, you know, any of the session players that worked on my demos as songwriters. Of course, I was coming from Texas, so I didn't really get to know the guys that well. And, uh, you know, it was like, you, you know, you come up and recording demos is a very fast paced thing. I mean, you try to do five songs in three hours and everybody's going really quickly. And, you know, they were great guys, but I never really got the chance to know them much. So, uh, it was after that I moved to town in 01, 2001, that we actually got to sit down and talk enough for, to find out, that, you know, that, that Jim was a writer and, and that we probably ought to sit down together and try this. And uh, I'm really glad we did. So, Mr. Br- uh, Brown, what did you think when you met? What was the first impression of uh, Don Rollins? Well, Don has a lot better memory than I do because I, I kind of remember those days. But but as a musician, I play on so many uh, songwriters demo sessions that they all kind of run together a little bit. I mean, I do, I do remember that, but I think his memory is a lot better than mine. I don't remember a whole lot, uh, about those days, but, uh, you know, at that time I wasn't, I wasn't writing at all. Don said that he didn't know, you know, if I was a songwriter or not at that time, I actually wasn't. I don't think I wrote my first song until about 1998 or 99 and uh uh so his impression of me as a piano player was probably the only only thing he had to go by because I wasn't writing songs at that time. I remember early on meeting Don, I really got into his lyrics. He's a very 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 brilliant lyricist and uh that was probably my first memory of those sessions that we did together back then. It's just what a strong lyricist he is. You have had the opportunity to play on a lot of uh, albums uh, with your keyboard playing. And uh, I was talking to John Goodwin earlier, and he said, man, Jim is one of the best keyboard players in town. And I was wondering, out of all the session work you've done, is there any in particular that really stands out in your mind as being a particularly memorable or uh, a special album to you personally? Uh, Well, I've played on... Uh, three of Brad Paisley's records, and uh, those always stand out to me because he he is such an incredible musician. Uh, I remember the album that we did, the last album that we did uh, last year. Uh, well, actually, we just finished one up, but it's not out yet. But but we did an album for him last year called uh, Time Well Wasted, and we did an instrumental on there called Time Warp, and it was the fastest thing I've ever, not only ever played. It's I think it's the fastest thing I've ever heard. Uh, that's one of the, that's one of the highlights, uh, recent highlights anyway. Um, you know, I don't know. They're all kind of special in their own way. Uh, artists, you know, true artists bring a lot to the table and it's, they all bring something special. So I don't know if I can narrow it down to just one or two experiences. It's, it's just a neat thing I get to do, you know. One song that you guys wrote that all of our listeners know, it's five o'clock somewhere. Uh, I was wondering. Uh, how, and I'm sure you guys get asked this question all the time. How did you guys get the idea to have a song about how this one particular time of the day, no matter where you are, you can kick back and have a cocktail? Who came up with the initial idea? 
Um, I, I actually got that idea. I wish I could claim credit for it, but I mean, it's obviously it's an old saying. Um, my first teaching job um, back in 1983 when I graduated from college, I was an assistant band director at Humble High School in Texas, and uh, Jim Blackshire, who was my boss, uh, was, uh, you know, he, he was a just this East Texas guy from Nacogdoches and, and very, uh, very colorful in the things he would say. And we would, uh, you know, leave school at three 30 or so together every day. And, and, uh, and I'd say, you know, of course I'm 22 years old. So I, you know, of course I want to go have a beer. So I, I would say, Jim, you want to go have a beer? And he looked at his watch and say, well, it's five o'clock somewhere. And, and he said that every day for so long that I think it imprinted on some brain cell that I didn't kill back in those days. <laughs> it came out when it needed to. But uh, as I remember, Jim was playing piano on a, a record by an artist uh, who was on Sony at the time, who I don't think his record ever came out, and uh, just mentioned that he was looking for a Buffett vibe kind of a thing. And I said, you know, I have a title that I've been wanting to write that would work really well with that groove, and he threw out his five o'clock somewhere. And uh, and it was it was written very quickly. Uh, and, I, and I remember saying somewhere probably in the bridge, I want to uh, put the line, what would Jimmy Buffett do? Um, uh, and I, all I was doing was just with my evil, sarcastic sense of humor was poking a little fun at the Jesus bumper stickers. Uh, you know, we had no inkling that that would actually be a, a record that Jimmy Buffett sang on. You know, that was just one of those miracles that happen up here sometimes. And I've, I've seen so many places, you know, signs, uh, little stickers on people's car. Now that they WWJBD, what would Jimmy Buffett do? And, uh, you know, this is this song has kind of become like an anthem now, and you know it's becoming a song that Buffett is doing every almost every concert, and it's like a cry, uh, you know, a, a rallying cry that people, you know, it's like it's Friday. <sighs> Thank God, you know. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, and I want to ask Jim this one. When you guys had put the song together, did you have a good feeling behind it? Did you think, well, this is a real, uh, this is a killer cut? Yeah, we did. I, I think we, we thought we, after we wrote it, that we had hooked one, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it's such a funny business. You just never know. It, it's There's a lot of variables, and it's a lot of luck. It's a lot of timing. It's a lot of, a lot of things that are out of your control. So, I mean, I, I think Don and I have written some some great songs together and I don't know that I would have picked that one at the top of the list. You know, I think we, we had, um, uh, an artist in mind and we had, uh, like he said, I can't even remember the artist's name now, but the album never came out. Thank goodness. But, uh, we pitched him that song and they passed on it. And, uh, so I remember talking to Don and I, I kind of thought to myself, maybe we didn't hook it as good as I thought we did, but, uh, there's just like I said, there's just so many variables that you can't control. You just have to write them the best you can and throw them out there, and hopefully they t they take. You know. When did you guys first realize that this song was going to be a full head-on success? Don Rollins is going to take this one. Um, well, I I think uh, when Alan cut it and went ahead and put Jimmy's vocal on there, uh, and and it was obviously destined to be on a greatest hits package one of two new songs on the greatest hits package. And that pretty much 
is a guaranteed single. I mean, that's what happens. It's like when an artist puts a greatest hits package together, they put a couple of new songs on there, and those are singles to sort of help promote the greatest hits package. So, um, you know, we really didn't have any doubt that it was going to be a hit with, I mean, since it was an Alan Jackson single, and then Jimmy Buffett on it would make it a hit on another level. Um, uh, I don't think that you one of us really thought it was going to do everything that it did. I mean, eight weeks of number one and a Grammy, and I mean, that's pretty over the top. I mean, you, you don't, I, I certainly didn't think of it like that, but I really figured it'd be a successful single for sure. Once, once it was, you know, it was cut by who it was cut by. I've seen pictures of you guys with, uh, with Jimmy Buffett. And I'm wondering, uh, have, have you guys also had interactions with Alan Jackson? Uh, yeah, we've had a few. I took my son to see him. Uh, my son became an Alan Jackson fan through all this. And we went down to, uh, Huntsville, Alabama and saw one of his concerts. And then Don and I went out to see him when he performed here at the Wild Horse Saloon in Nashville. Uh, I've probably actually been exposed to, to Buffett a little bit more than Alan. Um, and, and Jimmy Buffett has just been really, really nice through all this. He's been, I mean, first of all, I think he's genuinely enjoyed this. I mean, I know that he didn't need it, but I think he kind of missed being on radio. And I, I, he's just really seemed to genuinely enjoy it it's been a neat thing to watch and i gotta tell you something he did one of the nicest things i've ever had anybody do for me since uh i've been in town and uh that song it's five o'clock somewhere it won the ascap nashville song of the year which is the award they give uh to the to the song that that i guess has the most airplay in that year and uh jimmy buffett is a bmi writer which is kind of the opposite, you know, they're kind of competing, uh, performing right organizations. And uh, when he heard that it was going to win the uh, ASCAP Song of the Year, he he made a special trip to Nashville and came to the ASCAP Awards. And as I was performing it on stage, I had no idea that he was there. When I got to the part where I said, what would Jimmy Buffett do? He snuck up on stage and sat down at the piano next to me and started singing with me. It was it was a special, special thing, and that's just a small example of what kind of human being he is. He's a very gracious, caring person. I wanted to ask you guys if uh, what what's on the horizon, with you guys. What what kind of stuff are you doing right now? I imagine you're continuing with your songwriting, but uh, are there any projects right now that both of you are working on, either together or separately? And I'll start with Mr. Rollins. Well. Um just for myself as a writer, I've just been lucky enough to get two songs on the upcoming uh, Reba McIntyre duets project, um, which is, um, I mean, just it's amazing to get on that record and and to get two on there is is really over the top. But uh, but I'm really excited about that uh, coming out, um, and uh, that that's really I guess the thing that's been taking up most of my attention for the last few months is just writing for that record and. and um, and just b- before we met this afternoon, I came out of the studio trying to uh, get another song ready to, to hopefully get a third one on that record. So we'll see how that goes. But that, that's been consuming a lot of my attention these days. But tell them who the duet partners were. Uh, well, the uh, the first one was a song called Sleeping with a Telephone with uh, Faith Hill. And the, uh, uh, the second one was uh, a song called Everyday People with Reba and Carol King. So... Uh, so yeah, that's pretty. For a songwriter, Carol King is like one, one of the icons of that business. So that's really that's really flattering. So. Yes, sir. <laughs> and Mr. Brown, what what about you? Well, uh, I actually have not been writing at all. I'm just diving back into it. I uh, I got a strange call about six months ago. 
my phone rang at 10 o'clock at night and uh, answered the phone. He said, Moose? And I said, yeah. And he said, this is Bob Seeger. And I went, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, then I looked at caller ID and it said Michigan. And I, and I said, holy cow, this is Bob Seeger, you know. So I had been recommended to him. Uh, I'm primarily in Nashville known as a keyboard player. But years ago, I used to play electric guitar. And I kind of gave it up when I started doing recording sessions and just focused on piano playing a bit. Anyway, somebody had recommended me to Bob, uh, Brent Rowan, actually, who's a session player here in Nashville recommended me. Bob was looking for somebody who could play guitar and keyboards and sing. And uh, so he invited me up to Detroit and hang out with him for a little bit. And the next thing I knew, I was part of the Silver Bullet Band. So that's what I've been doing for the last five or six months is I've, I've been on a tour with Bob. And that tour just finished up um, in Detroit. We did three shows in Detroit. And they recorded the last two and had a film crew out and everything. So I think there's going to be a live album that comes out of that. Uh, but anyway, it's been a really, that's what I've been involved with the last six months. And I'm, so I'm just diving back into songwriting right now. When you guys aren't uh, writing songs or performing music or recording music, uh, I was wondering what you guys do in your downtime, if you have any. <laughs> uh, downtime, what's that? Um, well, I, for, personally, uh, I mean, Jim mentioned that I'm a lyric writer. Uh, the fuel for that is that I read. A lot. And that's really, I mean, if, if I find myself with a few hours and nothing to do, that typically is what I do. Um, I, um, you know, I, I read, I still, my, my daughter is a, a really fine oboist, a high school oboist. She just turned 17 yesterday. And uh, so I still uh, pull out the teaching chops and, and go work with her school groups occasionally, um, just, you know, as a guest and, and do some of that here and there. Um, but, uh, and I love to hunt and fish when I get the chance, but it's been, uh, actually quite some time since I've had the, the, you know, a chance to slow down that much, but I'm actually going to, uh, North Carolina to the beach over Labor Day and, and going to go chase the fish around a while. But I actually like really deliberately block off chunks of my calendar to do anything like that. Cause you, this business will consume you, you know, if, if you're, if things are going well and if things are going horribly, then your phone never rings and you're really miserable. So, <laughs> so, so it's, uh, you know, but it, all in all, I really shouldn't complain, but I'm, I'm very busy with, with what I do and I love what I do. Uh, downtime. You know, I don't really have a lot of downtime either. I, I try to, uh, set aside weekends to be, uh, with my youngest son, my older son, is in college, uh, Jeremy, he's 19, and my younger son is 14, and Josh. And so we do a lot of stuff together on the weekends. I've got a Harley. We ride some together and, and uh, try to get uh, caught up in the yard work and that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, just try to stay around the house and be with the family. My last question for you guys, given that this program goes out all over the world, it's kind of a philosophical question. Well, what would you like to say to the world? And I'd first like to ask Don Rollins. I'd like to say to the world, that's a really loaded question. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if the world would like to hear what I'd like to say to it. Uh, <laughs> uh, man, uh, all I can say is uh, lighten up. You know, um, you know, I, I think we um, we really are just as a as a planet emphasizing our differences a lot these days. And I think there are people that are making a really good living off of helping us emphasize our differences. And, uh, and I, I, you know, I really wish that we would uh, learn how to read beyond the headlines a little bit and, and think beyond the sound bites and speed and, and uh, realize that we definitely all have more in common than we, than we have uh, not in common. So that was what I would say. And Jim Moose Brown. 
Well, I think that was I think that was some pretty good comments right there. I, I feel the same way. I also feel that uh, uh, along with lightening up, we should, uh, you know, not like Don said, believe everything. There's always two sides to everything, you know. And and I think that uh, you shouldn't believe everything that you see on television. I think that there's such a demand now on television that you got to uh, search out for the truth a little bit, you know, and. Uh, I think also, you know, sometimes you need to look upward for the answers instead of to the television, you know. Uh, I try to do that as much as I can. Well, guys, thank you so much for making the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, we had a great time. Pat O'Brien borrows you guys a lot of money. We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song, courtesy of John Primerano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good. <laughs>